Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Cracks in the consensus. 60 minutes to the Fed minutes, and everyone is wondering whether there will be signs of a fracture about what the Fed should do next. We'll get you set up and run through the latest on jobs and inflation today as well. Plus, more D.C. drama as the GOP struggles to elect a House speaker. Why this could set the stage for two years of tail risk and the potential fallout for the economy and the markets. And speaking of the markets, if you're a stock picker, you can get some high-quality names at bargain prices right now. Our market guest brings four of his favorites, and there's a twist. But first, we begin with Bob Bassani down at the New York Stock Exchange. How's the markets, Bob? And Kelly, we're right near the highs for the day. And the Santa Claus rally, believe it or not, is very much intact. Let me show you the major averages. And here's something we haven't seen in a while. The Nasdaq is doing better. A small outperformance compared to the Dow Industrials. Remember, the Dow outperformed the S&P and the Nasdaq last year. So today, the Nasdaq's doing a little better because tech, except Microsoft, doing better in general. The Dow leaders today... Stocks that had a tough time last year. Disney had a tough time last year. It's a leader today. So did Intel. Uh, That's doing a little bit better. American Express didn't have a great year. It's up. Boeing's on a real tear, folks. I mean, that's got big momentum. Uh, That stock's only, what, 10% or so from a 52-week high here. Uh, In terms of the laggards, think last year's big winners. Now, the one exception here is Microsoft, which got a downgrade today uh, over at UBS. But think healthcare had a really great year last year. United Health and Humana have had a terrible two days, down notably. So there it is, you know, sell the winners last year. Same with energy. Oil's approaching, approaching a 52-week low. So some of those big names like APA, which had huge years last year, again, another down day today. Elsewhere, uh, I mentioned the Santa Claus rally. It's ending today, and we may have a winner. It's, remember, it's seven days, the last five days of the last year and the first two of the new year. The average gain is 1.3%. It's up 80% of the time. It's up in the seven days. And we have to have it work. It has to be over 38.22. We're well over that. In fact, we're up about 1%. This is close to an average gain for the S&P 500. This is in the last seven days. So the Santa Claus rally very much intact. I almost forgot, guys, Salesforce, a big mover today as well. Mark Benioff saying he's cutting 10% of the workforce. Uh, And that stock, remember, not far from a 52-week low. Kelly, back to you. And that stock is up 3%, Bob. But a lot of people looked at that with a little bit of nervousness and said, is this a sign that we're not going to see a lot of resiliency in in big enterprise spending next year? What's it tell us about, I mean, so many different companies use Salesforce technology. The fact that they're looking at pulling back 10% of their staff, what does that tell you? But these companies staffed up dramatically in the last four or five years. You know, when you're in an environment where the economy is a little slower and slowing down, you want to contract your your workforce a little bit. That's only prudent management overall. I'm not surprised Mark Benioff is doing this at all. By the way, he didn't complain about this when the stock was at 52-week highs. He's been complaining about productivity recently. He didn't say that with 52-week highs. So definitely some pressure on the stock price is probably a little motivation here. Yeah, fair enough. Bob, thank you. Our Bob Bassani, we appreciate it. Now to the big question on everybody's mind. Are there any hints that the Fed could start considering an earlier pause of rate hikes? We get some major clues top of the hour with the minutes from the last meeting released. Steve Leisman is at the Federal Reserve in Washington with more. Steve? Yeah, Kelly, unfortunately, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari dashing any hopes for any signs of dovishness ahead of the release of the minutes from the December meeting. In an essay he released today, Kashkari said he's looking for a 5.4% funds rate this year. That puts him at the high or hawkish end of the range of the FOMC 
which is pretty united in its outlook for rates going higher for, for longer. 17 of the 19 members forecast rates, this was in December, ending the year at 5% or higher compared with the current rates of 438. That means your average Fed official has at least 75 basis points of hikes built in from here. Some have a full percentage point baked in. Meanwhile, the market has two more 25 basis point rate hikes built in somewhat less than uh, the Fed itself. And uncertainty begins in May. Today's minutes are going to be scrutinized for any cracks in the Fed's consensus. Where might it come from? If they show some concern about things like weakening job growth or slowing wages, uh, if they uh, acknowledge declining inflation or, or increased recession chances, make a big deal about monetary policy lags, and of course, maybe the most important, if they start to get concerned about financial instability. Today's data, meanwhile, ISM survey showed more weakness in manufacturing activity along with declines in price levels, but the survey also showed increases in employment, and the JOLT survey saw only a modest decline in job openings that remains at a high level. So contrary to what the Fed is looking for, the labor market still looks to be very tight, Kelly. Yeah, no, that is so key. And we know, Steve, you'll be speaking 830 tomorrow morning uh, with Casey, Kansas City Fed President Esther George, very, very much hanging on every word uh, at the moment. Stay with us. Our next guest, who has been taking one lick after another in recent weeks, by the way, is still optimistic that this year can turn out OK. And he brings us five things that could go right. Let's bring in Ed Yardeni, president of Yardeni Research. Ed, how are you holding up? Welcome. I'm holding up just fine. Thank you. I mean, what was it, COVID and RSV and, and how many different things went wrong with the, it, it yeah, sounds like I you had, had a, uh, a whopper there. I had three out of four of the viruses. I just didn't, I don't want to jinx it. I did not get the flu, but I got the other three, <laughs> COVID and uh, RSV and uh, then uh, pneumonia. But uh, I'm recovering. I feel fine. Oh my God. All right. God bless. Thank you for joining us. Maybe you of all Thank people you. can make some grand analogy about this and the markets because, um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're still steadfastly sort of seeing glass half full here for 2023. Yes. Why? What do you think can go right? Well, I, I think uh, we're going to have a soft landing, not a hard landing. The data so far shows no landing. As, uh, as you know, the real GDP number for the third quarter of last year was uh, solid, and it looks as though we're closer to 4% now looking at the fourth quarter. So uh, second half of last year, there was no sign of a recession whatsoever and no, no landing whatsoever. I think the consumers are going to remain resilient. I think that while they may uh, eat into excess savings over the first half of the year, I think wages are going to rise faster than prices. So I think real wages are going to increase. Meanwhile, I think the labor market, as Steve pointed out, still looks pretty strong. And so payroll employment is still going to generate some purchasing power. The housing market sort of a mixed story. We've got very weak single family, but very strong multifamily. So that's kind of a rolling recession uh, th that's going through the housing market. We've we've had a sort of a rolling recession in the consumer area where consumers have cut down on spending on goods and in instead they're spending more on services. True. So I, I think the consumer is the key and I think they're, they're going to hang in there. And I might say that the whole market is hanging on, and I'll turn to you for this, Steve, basically when is the Fed going to stop hiking? I can't tell you how many right. people from home building yeah. analysts to stock pickers to you name it. They say, I yeah. will get more bullish, uh, Steve, when the Fed well, stops hiking rates. And yeah. what is the consensus, the expectation for that at the moment? Well, the first thing I want to tell you is I believe I always read Ed stuff, but I believe it more now because anybody can go through what he just went through <laughs> and still be optimistic. There's a lot more to that forecast now than maybe there was previously. So I think that's important to add. 
um, <laughs> let me show you where the disagreement is. Before I get there, guys, if you could pull up that out, the, the, the May debate uh, full screen that we created. First of all, they're in pretty good agreement on February and March having 25 basis points. When you get to May, that's when it gets interesting and the market starts to diverge. You have a small percentage think they're going to cut once they reach that 488 level. Another percentage thinks they hold. A larger percentage thinks that um, they're going to raise another quarter and another small percentage. So you can see the distribution there of probabilities. Now, one of the reasons it's interesting to think about, Kelly, for the difference between the Fed and the market, if you're a Fed official, you have to go in and write down a number for where you think you're going to be. If you're in the market, you can take small bets on all four of those different positions I just showed you, and that's why you get a distribution. It could be one person has all of those bets, or, of course, one person could be betting on one particular outcome. So it's the distribution, the idea that one is modal and one and the other is not, mm. that is part of the reason for the differential. But really, it comes down to the data between now and May that will be ultimately decisive. Right. We start to get the jobs report on Friday. We have a CPI report next week. And that's where ultimately uh, those continuation of that through May, I think I think the Fed does go to 488. Um, and then the question becomes five or higher and for how long. Right. And Ed, I guess that makes, you know, in light of this morning, because Steve is right to highlight just how strong really right. the jolts data has been, the employment part of ISM, the labor market in general. Would you say for markets, the most important data point for the next couple of months is the jobs report or anything that hints, you know, jobless claims at mm -hmm. at the strength of the labor market? I have to imagine as soon as that softens, the Fed's going to pause. Yeah, I think anything jobs related is uh, important. The Fed will give it a lot of weight. Uh, but so are the inflation numbers. Let's not forget that's how we got into this mess last year is inflation turned out to be more persistent and less transitory uh, than I and other and Fed officials anticipated, as well as other economists. The markets were really surprised by that. And the Fed was kind of very uh, late in catching up with the curve. And once they realized they were behind the inflation curve, they really scrambled to catch up, and that's why they've uh, turned so hawkish uh, in the second half of last year, increasingly so. So right now, they're still into that hawkish mode, trying to convince us all that their credibility is still intact and that they intend to bring inflation down. Uh, but I, I think we're going to probably see that the terminal Fed funds rate is going to be between 5 and 5 and a quarter percent. I think that'll happen uh, over the next three meetings with 25 basis point increases. And then I think they're going to keep it there for a while, which is what would be different this time than previous uh, cycles in the monetary policy. Yeah. Still, you say you think 2023 will be a better year than 2022, uh, to which we would add that's a pretty low bar, we hope, <laughs> to pass. Guys, thank you both very much for your time today. Ed Yardeni and our own Steve Leisman. Steve, we'll see you again soon for those minutes. Now, while the markets have had a rough ride in 2022, my next guest says if you're a stock picker, this may be your year. It's a great time to scoop up some high-quality names at attractive prices. Joining me now is Abe Deshpande. He's chief investment officer at Centerstone. And Centerstone. And Abe, when I see I'm reminded of all those kind of real versus Reddit segments we did the last couple of years. And you were always saying these valuations made no sense. So you were right. Uh, well, I, I don't know that um, I was the only one saying that. It was kind of obvious. But <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that era um, is past, uh, thankfully. <laughs> and uh, now we're into a new era, it looks like. Um, I, don't, I don't know that, you know, there's no more downside. I'm not going to make any predictions like that. But what the last couple of years has uh, um, helped to do, though, especially last year, has helped to bring prices down of reasonably kind of or, or, or good companies right, back down to reasonable prices. Um, and that's allowed us value investors at Centerstone, we're value investors, to kind of 
spread out the, uh, the portfolio a little bit more to have uh, better quality companies, um, more so than we had for a few years before that. So environments like last year, those are, um, you don't know it, but you're making your money last year, um, you know, in, in companies that you, you're able to buy that you can hold on to. And a lot of times those types of companies, you know, I don't really have to do so much thinking about them. The management teams, the, uh, the reason they're franchises, the management teams are good, the businesses are stable right. or able to grow. And it just takes a lot of guesswork out of it. No, and it's fascinating because when you lay out that case, I go, okay, I bet he's going to go to kind of like, you know, boring but strong large caps, you know, maybe. And, and yet the names that you have here are, to me, are truly provocative. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Tencent and Porsche and Ryanair, even Ross Stores. There's a lot of international names here. A lot of people are concerned that you can even hold positions like that for a long time. I mean, connect the dots for me how you get from this is a year for stock picking to those kinds of stocks. Yeah, I mean, the, the common element there is, um, I think, reasonable prices for what are franchises. Uh, franchises meaning that they're solid market positions with plenty of growth opportunities. And if you look at all of them, they occupy parts of their um, or they, they, their niche occupies a, a market that is itself growing and they have a low cost or low price, some sort of uh, value uh, that they can um, add to uh, or offer to the client that they're looking for. So, you know, Ryanair has the lowest costs uh, for for air transportation in Europe. Ross Stores is like a TJ Maxx. You know, that industry is growing um, and continues to grow during uh, this uh, weakness or recession or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, and on and on and on. The Chinese companies, we, we started, uh, I mean, I've never owned any Chinese stocks until uh, the fall. And um, for many of the reasons I think everyone is, is well aware of, um, but I, I bought several of them around the time of the, um, of the, uh, the Communist Party meeting to like re reappoint uh, Xi. Uh, the stock market had completely given up because of that. And some of these stocks were already kind of cheap before. Hmm. And they got to points where there, some of them are trading at five, six times earnings. And these are companies that have dominant positions, like, you know, like Tencent does in its, in its core categories. Yeah. Now, a lot of these stocks have already uh, rebounded. Tencent's almost doubled from the bottom, right? So, um, but there's still value cases to, be, uh, to, to make there. Um, you have good, solid businesses. Now you have the valuations corrected, but now you have with China opening up, obviously there's going to be some a transition period over the next few months as sure. they get through a COVID, this, this wave of COVID. But um, yeah, there's so much demand just waiting to get a, unleashed on, on the world um, and, and, and domestically as well. So you have an earnings story there that's probably pretty long lived in nature. Um, in Europe, people are very much focused on the obvious things, energy and that kind of stuff. But, you know, there are plenty of opportunities there where yeah. multinationals like a Porsche or what have you can manage all that. No, it's uh, and meanwhile, they trade at, at, at good prices. Yeah. We, we have to go in this. I want to bring you back for a separate discussion on this. But are there any of the big, for instance, Fang names, Tesla, anything like the fallen angel type thing where you think this is now a good opportunity real quickly? Uh, no, I mean, the, the one, um, I guess, area where that would be, you know, sort of complementary is these Chinese companies that yeah. they occupy some of the same types of, uh, you know, segments in, the mar in their own local markets. They're platform type companies. But the value, they're in completely different phases, though, sure. of uh, their, their cycles. No, it's well said. And I did not expect, like I said, but I thought you were going to go one place with this. And you, instead, you went to several <laughs> others. And I think our audience might find it quite useful. Abe, it's great to have you on today. Thanks so much. 
Thanks. Abe Despande with Centerstone. Still ahead, we're piling into consumer staples. The sector was only down 3% last year, but is that enough to justify its high multiples? We'll look at three names reporting results tomorrow before the bell. It's coming up on Earnings Exchange. But first, the House speakership still in limbo, and that could have big implications for investors waiting on policy changes. We'll get the latest from Washington next on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been 100 years since the last time a House Speaker vote needed multiple ballots, and it doesn't look like we're getting a resolution anytime soon. Elon Moy in Washington with the latest this hour. Elon? Well, Kelly, the fourth vote for Speaker of the House has ended in yet another stalemate as California Republican Kevin McCarthy failed to secure the 218 votes he needs to win that top job once again. So, frankly, not a whole lot has changed since this process began 24 hours ago. Today, 20 Republicans voted against McCarthy. One Republican who previously supported him voted present. Yesterday, 20 Republicans voted against him as well. Only four Republicans can oppose him in order for him to secure the speakership. Now, this time, conservatives did put their support behind a Florida Republican named Byron Donald. Donald is someone who had initially supported McCarthy but then changed his position. And one of the leaders of this opposition, Scott Perry, declared today that he is not backing down because it is time to end the status quo. So, as it stands right now, we appear to be headed to a fifth round of votes for Speaker. McCarthy told reporters that he would prefer to adjourn so that Republicans could negotiate in person, face-to-face, and if he believes that that happened, that they could come to an agreement today. But, Kelly, Republicans need 218 votes in order to adjourn, and McCarthy doesn't have that either. Back over to you. All right, Elon. Thank you for now, Elon Moy. For more on how the House votes and the policy implications, let's bring in Chris Kruger. He's managing director and Washington Research Group strategist with Cowan. Great to see you, Chris. Welcome. This is this is some drama. It is. It's something no one has has ever seen. Uh, this is now four failed votes uh, inside of 24 hours with no real path forward. Uh, there's no momentum for McCarthy. He's actually lost votes uh, since this began. So the outlook remains uh, incredibly challenging for for. Uh, McCarthy and Republicans. And two years of tail risk for investors is what you already see as a result of this? It is. I mean, it really underscores, you know, the next two years. I mean, it it only gets harder from here, right? This is typically the easiest vote you cast. It's (laughs) largely ceremonial. Um, Now, you know, in markets favor, most of the sharp sort of policy objects were taken off the table at the end of last year with that huge omnibus spending package. So Congress doesn't actually really have to, quote unquote, do much uh, until late summer when the debt ceiling comes into focus. Then you'll have to fund the government uh, into the new fiscal year. Uh, so you, 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 we can put up with a couple weeks or longer of, of noise and theatrics, but the rubber does start to meet the road. Uh, come this summer. The main concern I'm hearing is about the debt ceiling. Would you say that is a valid one, the most important one? For sure. Um, you know, I think in particular, too, when, when you rewind the tape a little bit uh, to 2011, the last time there was a real debt ceiling crisis, 
obviously then you got the the first S&P downgrade. Um, but at that time, Republicans had a 17 seat margin and you had a steady hand at the uh, at the till with with Speaker with Speaker John Boehner. You now are going to have a, a four seat majority, maybe less given the shall we say, you know, legal considerations swirling around uh, Congressman-elect George Santos. Right. So, you know, you, you you have very little margin for error um, and you can't even get 218. You can't even get 200 votes uh, on 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 some of this. Stuff. So it's it's going to be real challenging. We'll see how it how it all unfolds. But a, a, a pretty poor beginning, I think, by by any metric. So for people thinking through the exposures of their different sectors, debt ceiling aside, what would you say would be the difference between a more serious Republican majority and the kind of, if we call it majority, that is likely to emerge from all of this in terms of policymaking? And if, as specifically as you could, for instance, on, you know, everything from defense, health care, you know, the IRS, I, I can't even think of all the ramifications. Right. Well, you know, like, the, I mean, the debt ceiling is you know, the most macro event you can think of, right? Like the, the entire global financial system is based on the idea that treasuries are riskless assets hmm. and Congress in its infinite wisdom will put that to uh, the challenge later this summer, early fall. R regardless of who comes out of the speaker's race, though, you know, you, you still have uh, these these members who are going to be very, very challenging uh, to corral. Uh, what you do have, though, I mean, if if the speakers once the speaker race continues and uh, is concluded, you know, tax increases are off the table for the next two years, hmm. which is something that, you know, j j is is uh, should be welcomed by markets. Now, you do have that fiscal cliff coming up in, in 2025 when all of the uh, the 2017 tax changes uh, snap back although the corporate rate remains at 21%. So outside of the self-created uh, headline risk and tail risk on Capitol Hill, the policy environment from a legislative standpoint within divided government should be pretty good for two years. All right, we'll see if they look through. Maybe we have to get through the summer, get through this vote first uh, to do that. Chris, thanks for your time today. Thanks again. Chris Kruger with Cowan. Coming up, oil prices, they're sliding again today as crude starts off the year with a pretty steep sell-off. Look at WTI, below $74 a barrel. One energy expert says this gridlock in Washington we were just talking about, it could really hamper energy policy hopes. We'll dig into that. Plus, Apple back above the $2 trillion level in market cap, but can it keep climbing back? Or are those $3 trillion days a distant memory? The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Some green over here uh, for once. The Dow was up 273. We're up 191 right now. 1% gain, though, for the S&P and NASDAQ, which are outperforming today. Now, Tesla is trying to rebound from its worst day since September 2020 after those disappointing delivery numbers. Shares are up about 4% today. They're still down 8% since yesterday. But ARK Invest Kathy Wood still buying the dip, adding about $19 million worth of shares. Tesla now makes up 6.5% of her flagship ARK Innovation ETF, the ARK-K. Tesla is the third biggest 
holding behind Zoom video and exact sciences now. For more on what else Wood's buying, you can head over to CNBC.com slash pro. Check out that list. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. And here's your CNBC News update at this hour. A California man was arrested for attempted murder and child abuse after investigators say he intentionally drove a Tesla off a cliff on Monday. The suspect, another adult and two children, suffered serious injuries Monday morning after the Tesla they were driving in plunged 250 to 300 feet down the side of that cliff. Investigators uh, believe the incident was an intentional act. The singer William Rick Sing, well, excuse me, William Sick Ringer, Rick Singer, the mastermind of Varsity Blues College admission scam, is set to be sentenced in a federal courthouse nearly four years after the scandal was exposed. Prosecutors have asked to sentence him to six years in prison and for him to pay over 19 million in fines and asset forfeitures. Singer pleaded guilty at the time to racketeering conspiracy, money laundering conspiracy, uh, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and obstruction of justice. He agreed to cooperate with the government's investigation. And there was no Mega Millions winner in Tuesday night's drawing. The next drawing, Friday, estimated jackpot, $940 million. That makes Friday's estimated jackpot the fourth largest in Mega Millions history. Kelly, back to you. I'll see you soon, Tyler. Thanks. Still ahead, Walgreens, Constellation, and Conagra all report tomorrow morning as investors brace for bad news on the earnings front this year. Can they buck the trend? We have the story, the action, and the trade on Earnings Exchange next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're not officially off to the races with the first earnings season of the year yet. That really starts next week with the banks. But we still have three big consumer names reporting before the bell tomorrow, and we could take any clues on the economy right now. Let's get the action, the story, and the trade on all three, and we'll start with Walgreens. Now, this stock was one of the worst Dow performers last year, down 30%. The street, keeping an eye on its push into health care and its earnings, have beaten estimates 17 out of the past 20 quarters. Let's bring in David Katz to trade it. He's Matrix Asset Advisors Chief Investment Officer. David, it's great to have you here. Walgreens seems like the type of stock that should have done well last year. What happened? It's an odd thing. Their earnings have come in at or better than expectations. And as you said, the vast majority of times, but they are cleaning up a lot of stuff. People had concerns about the quality of earnings. Uh, and that's been one area of the healthcare sector that did poorly last year with the drugstores. We think their earnings are going to be fine tomorrow. Again, a beat on both uh, the earnings and the revenues. And we think the stock is pretty reasonably priced. It's a low PE, so it's, it's you know, a very attractively priced stock with a very good dividend. But we think that they're pretty far behind CVS in terms of converting to a healthcare company from a drugstore company. Yeah. So we think it's okay, but we prefer CVS. Basically, if you like Walgreens, you're going to love CVS. That's the stock you don't think it's too expensive or anything? No, CVS is also at about 10 and a half times, 11 times earnings. Wow. And it's a much better business with a better trajectory. So we think the drugstore group's going to do well, CVS the best, and, and Walgreens should do fine, especially after a pretty miserable 2022. Yeah, CVS has really refreshed its look around here, so I take your point. All right, let's move along then and talk about Constellation Brands. People always say go with alcohol, it's recession-proof. The shares did relatively outperform last year, down only about 10%. So the big question, David, is whether... This falls prey to general slowdowns in consumer behavior, whatnot, um, and its valuation. What would you do here? So they really are a very good quality business. They've been able to grow their earnings very nicely over time. 
The stock is at about 20, 20 and a half times earnings, so it's a little bit above the market. However, it's a little bit below its historic averages. So if you want a good growth company, we're very comfortable with Constellation Brands. They've also beaten about seven of the last eight quarters. Uh, so we think there's a good chance they're going to do fine tomorrow with a good outlook. Um, so we think it's an okay hold. We, we we're pretty excited about a lot of areas of the market that we think are very attractive. This is just okay. Let me ask you in general, David. So we get these three sort of consumery, consumery staples companies in the morning at a time when people are so anxious about earnings for 2023. And they're saying we're so anxious. It's not about the earnings. It's about the guidance. You know, what are these companies going to see coming? Are, are you worried about that kind of messaging in these reports? And then obviously once we get into the banks next week. So we're worried about that kind of messaging as we go through earnings season. We're not so worried about that messaging in these companies. They've, they've done pretty well. They're in areas that are fairly stable. These companies have all performed pretty well in terms of their revenues. So we're expecting okay things from them. We think uh, the rest of the earnings season is going to be a lot more telling. We would not read too much into what the companies say tomorrow. It really is going to start to happen next week. All right. So the final one is ConAgra. It was up about 13% last year. People know these brands. They've got Slim Jim. They've got Boom Chicka Pop. They've got also Orville Redenbachers, I think. I mean, a wide variety of things here. We saw restaurant spending was up big. Maybe we thought people were trading away from supermarket brands. What would you do with the stock? So the group has done very well last year. Conagra also did very well last year. If you want a consumer staples company, we think it's absolutely fine. There are a lot of others in the group that have done exceptionally well that we think are fully priced that we'd be taking money from. We think their earnings and revenues and outlook are going to be fine tomorrow. So we think it's a, an absolutely good hold. We prefer Tyson Food in, the, uh, in that area just hmm. because that sells under 10 times earnings. So better valuation. But again, Conagra is absolutely fine as a hold for the next uh, 12 months. You mentioned some of its uh, other consumer staples peers are fully valued, i.e. maybe too expensive. What do you make of multiples here as a whole? Because you know everyone's going to look to get defensive in the market this year. Should this be the sector that they put uh, capital into? Well, we think it's exactly the opposite. The reason that they did so well in the last year is people were migrating toward defensive stocks. So consumer staples did exceptionally well on that migration. Also the drug stock as well. We think that although the, there's uncertainty in the economy in the upcoming year, we think ultimately the economy is going to be getting better as we uh, end the year and the markets are going to start to discount that sooner rather than later. So we'd be taking money out of consumer staples and putting into other areas of the market. Technology has gotten creamed. Financials have done poorly. We think those are better places to put money and we'd be using uh, some of the money from the consumer staples area for that. Mm, very provi- we got to get you back. Talk more about that one for sure. For now, we'll let it go. We'll look for those reports in the morning. David, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. You too. David Katz with Matrix. Coming up, the Great China reopening continues despite the surge of COVID cases there. We'll get the latest on concerns about new variants and the data scientists are looking for. The exchange back after two. Welcome back. A World Health Organization advisory group met yesterday to discuss the COVID surge in mainland China amid urging from the global community for the country to share more data. And a major concern, given the rapid spread there, is that new variants could emerge. Meg Terrell is back and she joins us now with that story. Welcome back, Meg. Thank you. I feel like we're socially distanced right here, but yeah. I'm going to come and see you very quickly. <laughs> so the good news is what we learned from that meeting uh, with the WHO advisory group is that right now about 98 percent of the cases that are being sequenced in 
China, at least as what they're reporting, uh, is an Omicron sublineage or two different Omicron sublineages. So those are relatively familiar things. But as you said, the thing that people are concerned about is that we're not getting enough data from China just across the board. And the worry is that we could get a more concerning variant in terms of contagiousness or severity. And the WHO did say that today they are watching this one, XBB.1.5, right. which in the United States is growing incredibly quickly. They actually said today that this is the most transmissible subvariant they've seen of COVID yet. And of course, that makes sense if it's going to grow uh, so quickly. We've seen it now more than 40% of cases in the U.S. in the most recent week of estimations from the CDC, up from 4% just about three weeks ago. The good news is, though, while they don't have definitive data on the severity of this variant just yet, uh, they don't expect it to be more severe. And we have a lot of background of immunity in the United States because of all the infections and all the vaccinations we've been getting, which is not the case necessarily in China. And, and come on over, uh, if you if we will, if we're allowed to do that now. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this is an interesting one because there are people who say the question of variants is one that we've already put to the test because of the spread globally and that opening up China doesn't necessarily present as much of a risk to new mutations. What are you hearing in terms of the risks here further mutations, the severity of those mutations, and all the rest of it? Well, the thing we know is that the more people who are infected, the more opportunities there are for more mutations to arise and more variants to come out. And so that's what we saw in India. That's what we've seen everywhere. We've seen a lot of spread. That's where Delta came from. Um, and so that is a concern. But Omicron has been so contagious. What we've been seeing is a splintering of Omicron into these many different sublineages. Um, and hopefully we won't see one emerge that is more severe, that really beats our vaccine protection. Uh, the government's message is getting boosted that should keep you protected against severe disease it probably won't protect us against infection though so and where are we on the vaccination question because uh even we were just talking with ed yardani at the top of the show and he's like i got my vaccines i got my boosters all the rest of it he still got covid does it provide protection against the severity of those symptoms and are there still any lingering questions about harm caused by the vaccine itself well, we know a lot about the vaccine safety profile. And of course, there is that rare heart side effect for specific groups, particularly young men under 30. But that is pretty rare. Um, the idea is that the vaccine, while not protecting against getting a case of COVID, should continue to protect well against severe COVID. The government warns the farther you are out and the older you are, uh, perhaps that will diminish over time. Um, but they are holding up pretty well against severe disease. And finally, what should we expect next from the WHO organizations like this? I mean, again, they, the rest of the world kind of asks them to step in here, but what is it that they have the capacity to do? Yeah, that's been a problem the entire time. They can provide information, they can provide guidance, but they have no real ability to actually affect any sort of changes uh, in any countries. And so we are continuing to look to them for information. They are continuing to urge China probably more strongly than, especially we saw at the beginning, to share information. Beyond that, we look to them mainly as a source of information. All right, Meg, thank you again. Great to have you back. Got to find a different topic, though. Yeah, okay. yeah, soon. Turning now to another China story, the lasting impact of the COVID shutdowns, which in particular are weighing on Apple. We've been talking all along about the weakness we've seen here in recent months, highlighted yesterday. Shares are bouncing back about 2%, so a little bit after that sh uh, sharp sell-off, but it's been a rough year. Apple had a 52-week low around $124 yesterday. It's still about 30% off the highs. 
Now it's back slightly above a $2 trillion market cap today, but it dipped below that level for the first time since March of 2021 yesterday. So will they be able to pick up the iPhone sales this quarter? And what about recession and China concerns? Steve Kovac, we turn to the man for some insight. The Steve. man. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> so look, it's a story here with Apple of resistance versus uncertainty. Resistance last year, Apple was better off than its peers, down 27%, and Meta on the other end of the spectrum, down 64%. Now, Apple appeared to be immune to a fall in demand that its peers saw in PCs and phones. So uncertainty, Kelly, that's all that's left right now. Apple told investors in November iPhone demand was still strong, and but the question now is, will that demand hold up this month and throughout the March quarter? Will Apple be able to pick up the slack in iPhone sales, like you just said? It all comes down to China, Kelly. China's new COVID policy put its workers at risk of getting sick. So instead of lockdowns, we may see people get too sick to work. We saw that with Tesla already shutting down its factory in Shanghai earlier than expected because of sick workers. Now, look, we have to wait a few more weeks, Kelly, when Apple reports its fiscal Q1 earnings. That was the December quarter. Was it worse than feared? Or what guidance will we get for the current March quarter? I know I say this every quarter, but this is going to be one of the most important Apple reports since the pandemic began, Kelly. Hey, come on over. So we were speaking with Chris Grisanti, the investor, yesterday, and who favors Amazon right now. And I said to him, why not Apple trading at under 21 times? And he said, because to him, that's not a bargain, that it used to be at a lower multiple last decade. It's still fundamentally a hardware company. It has the cyclicality and some concerns about the post-pandemic demand. What would the Apple <laughs> bulls say to counter yeah. all of those solid, it seems, uh, contentions? Yeah, one thing, um, and I've been talking about this throughout the day, is buybacks. So we don't talk enough about how much just tens of billions every quarter of buybacks Apple is buying. So there's that benefit. And a lot of people do credit, you know, Apple hanging on and resisting last year because of those buybacks, in addition to outperforming on the demand side. And then, look, it's, it's the other thing is, even if we head into a recessionary environment, people are still gonna upgrade their phones. So maybe they don't upgrade it this year. Maybe they get cold feet as a recession might come this year and say, okay, I didn't get one an iPhone in time for Christmas. I'm just gonna hold off another couple Christmases to see how things pan out. If I lose my job, whatever. And then, you know, but eventually it's going to come back. So the Pent bulls demand, would tell you, yeah. look, Apple's going nowhere. It's sitting on $200 billion in cash. It's going to be, it can stop making iPhones today and, and last through any recession. I also keep thinking about Brian Sullivan's uh, argument that he, what do you say, pays $70 or oh, yeah, dollars a month? Thing, exactly. Right, exactly. It's a subscription business. It's not a hardware company. We'll see. That will be put to the test this year. Steve, thank you. Thanks. Steve Kovac. Still ahead, both crude and E&P exploration companies falling over the past three months. Oil is down 16% nearly, but the oil field services ETF yeah, that's up 24%. We're going to look into this contradiction. It could continue, according to one industry watcher. He'll tell us why next. Welcome back. Oil prices are sliding again today. WTI and Brent both down more than 4%. Seems like those concerns about a global economic slowdown, and it comes on the heels of a record year for the energy sector. It was the only one in the green, up nearly 60 percent, but the rain may soon be over. My next guess is a combo of historically high prices and that looming recession concern could lead to meaningful demand compression. Let's bring in Kevin Book, Clearview Energy Partners Managing Director. Kevin, usually it's not the energy people who are bearish on energy. You know, everyone in their own sector is usually telling us why it's going to do so well. So I especially appreciate your contrarian point of view here. What are your concerns? Well, Kelly, there's a couple of things going on at once. Uh, glaringly, uh, the recession risks are that in front of us. Uh, start a new year with pessimism, uh, maybe, and get more optimistic as you go. Uh, there are some structural shortages still out there. Uh, and if you look at the world and you ask, 
you know, what does it mean to put a price cap on Russian products? It probably sounds like there's, there's more room for confusion, dislocation, and maybe price risk to the upside. On the other hand, demand looks a lot more responsive historically uh, in recent years relative to price in the non-OECD as well as the OECD. Uh, my colleague Jacques Rousseau points out that when you have a lot of demand concentrated in one place, China, or in one product, in this case, jet fuel, there's a lot of room for disappointment if they come up short. Uh, and so there, there are some reasons to have pause when you see weakness on the horizon. Yeah. So as an energy investor, then we point out the oil field services, for instance, uh, we've seen a, 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 a sort of switch there where they've been outperforming lately. Why is that? And can that continue even with what you're describing? Well, we look at the we look at the S&P subsector proxies uh, sort of as a market intelligence look ahead at things to come. And to the extent that you see WTI uh, underperforming uh, the E&P subsector, uh, underperforming the, the services subsector, you get a sense that maybe cyclical underinvestment that we saw during COVID is part of why the, you're not getting as much out of the shale patch in response to the call of high prices. And so maybe what we need here is more ability to get oil out. Uh, on the other hand, you, you want to be cautious about this, Kelly. Like everything else, uh, if you're sliding down, uh, all of energy tends to move with it. Right, exactly. What are you concerned about in Washington in particular as we watch this fight for the speakership? Um, and how could that impact energy investors? Well, just to start with, if you were asking, are you going to get a lot of cooperation out of Congress? Uh, so far this week, you're probably not getting cooperation even within one party, let alone across two. Uh, looking ahead, that means that the administration really has the spotlight for energy policy going forward. There's several things we expect, a lot of rules coming out of Washington. Uh, that's been in the offing for some time and really behind pace, but also federal superpowers, the ability to open federal lands to, to wind and solar, for example, but also to take a de minimis stance on offshore oil and gas drilling and to stave off onshore oil and gas lease sales. That likely to continue. Probably not a climate emergency declaration, Kelly, but we've seen a lot of really muscular intervention from governments over the last year. It doesn't look like it's about to stop anytime soon. I find it odd that we have people telling us that the stock, like David Katz just said, the stock market already was defensive last year. Now he's getting interested in some technology, maybe some financials, because he's anticipating beyond the, the recession, let's call it. it. It's striking to me that financial markets are behaving in that way, while energy and, and commodities markets seem to be acting as if, you know, we're still heading into this recession event. That 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 timing difference, I, I don't know if it's going to mean that one side is right and one side is wrong, or if people who are bullish on stocks for the long run, could also be bullish on oil, thinking, well, it might go down first, but then I can, you know, in the back half of this year or into next year, it should recover. What would you think about that? Well, I don't want to deliver a spontaneous PhD dissertation without the research <laughs> time, but let me offer this. The oil market is tightly geared. Uh, a small change in balances can have a big impact on price. Uh, the forward expectations have a lot to do with the movement of molecules and electrons to their destination. Uh, you often can have room for optimism deeper into the future deck uh, when you look past recessions into terminal values and discounted cash flows for equities. Uh, but when you're actually dealing with a surplus or a shortage in the energy market, it can rebound much closer to the front month and to the to the price you see on your on your screen yeah. in real time. Yeah, well, uh, we can do the Ph.D. dissertation uh, maybe after hours or something. But it is a fascinating point. Kevin, thank you so much uh, for all the questions, for taking them today. Thanks for having it. me. Kevin Buck joining us. Still ahead, high rates and low inventories pressuring auto sales last year. But with all the macro uncertainty, what about 2023? What happens to the automakers? We'll dig into expectations next.
Welcome back. One more thing before we go today, and that auto sales. They hit their lowest level in 11 years uh, last year. Question is, will they bounce back now? Let's get to Phil LeBeau for some answers. Phil? Good question, Kelly. We know what happens when a recession hits. Automakers usually see sales under pressure. It's a little bit different this time as we take a look at what the auto sales were for the fourth quarter for December. For a number of automakers who reported today, here's what you need to keep in mind. First of all, let's start with General Motors. Fourth quarter sales up 41.4%. And for all of last year, GM sales were actually a slight increase compared to 2021 and their 2022 sales up 2.5%. They edged Toyota for the crown of best sales in the United States. Remember, in 2021, Toyota manufactured and sold more than the, uh, in the U.S. than GM. In the uh, fourth quarter for all of 2022, sales were actually down 9.6% for Toyota. Then you've got Hyundai, December sales up 40%. Remember, it's a year-over-year comparison, and we're still dealing with some lumpiness when you're seeing uh, companies coming out of the uh, restrictions and the tight market when it came to semiconductors. As you take a look at the auto index, the auto sales are expected to come in, and we get that report later today between 13.8 and 13.9 million. As you mentioned, Kelly, that will be the lowest rate since 2011. And it's not a surprise. We knew this was going to be the case. Now the question becomes, how much can they increase sales in 2023? Most are saying they believe that the industry can get sales back up into the yeah. high 14 million, potentially, if things go well, 15 million range. But again, you never know what happens when you have a recession, if a recession hits next year. Absolutely. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau reporting. And that does it for The Exchange. Power Lunch begins right now.